Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to, you know where I'm going to tell you to open them to, right? If you've been here the last two weeks, we're going to open them up to where? Anybody know? Matthew chapter 5, right? Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, pick one of these up uh, from the floor around you, and it's on page 677. Uh, in this Bible, page 677, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to start. Last weekend, before I had the chance to be with you all, uh, I was running as part of a team in a relay race uh, 200 miles from Madison, Wisconsin to Chicago, Illinois. There were seven of us, six, me and six of my uh, closest friends were running through the night. We started at 8 o'clock on Friday morning and finished up at about 1.45 on Saturday afternoon. So we ran as a team through the night, and uh, we had a smaller team than usual. I got to run five legs. I ran a total of about 26 miles and um, over, over a day and a half. But uh, I, I remember my third leg uh, was five miles, and it was, at, it was dark. It was about 10 o'clock at night when we started. I was near Racine, Wisconsin, and uh, we, I took off running, and I didn't have a GPS or anything with me. I tend to not run with a lot of tools, but I got to the one-mile-to-go sign and realized that I was running a pretty good clip. And I felt good because I was you know, making my team happy. I was, I was doing well by the team, and so I got to four miles, and I felt good, and I was at about, at about one mile to go. I always take the uh, slap bracelet off because I get really sweaty, and it gets really wet, and I don't want to do that to my next teammate that I'm going to put it on, you know, and so I took this off, and I'm running. I've got this thing in my hand, and I get to 4.9 miles. I can see my team right up there, and the lights are flashing because, again, it's 10 o'clock at night, and uh, I see my teammate in the exchange zone with his arm out like he's ready for me to put this, and I get stopped by a stoplight. I mean, 10 o'clock at night, I, I'm in the middle of Wisconsin, and I get stopped at a stop. I've done everything that I can to run a good leg, and then all of a sudden, something happens that is completely out of my control. Do you know what that's like? You, you have something in your life that you, like, you work really hard to do the very best that you can, and then something that's completely out of your control happens, and it ruins the whole experience in some way. Do you know how that can be? I, I, it got me thinking about our need as humans to be in control. And so I was doing some research this week, and I read a story this week that talks about how everyone walking in Manhattan, in downtown New York City, pushes the walk button, the uh, push-to-walk button. You know these that you see everywhere? When they get to an intersection, pretty much everybody that's walking in Manhattan will push this button. The only problem is that this button is not connected to anything. Now, you may think that I'm joking about that, but the truth is in 1988... The city of New York uh, changed all of the traffic control in the entire grid in Manhattan to be computer controlled. But they didn't have the budget to take these buttons out. And so what you find now when you go to Manhattan, if you're in New York City, you ever go to Manhattan, the entire traffic grid, including the walk signals, are computer controlled, but they still have these buttons and people still push them, but they're not connected to anything. And the weird thing about that is everybody who lives in Manhattan knows this fact. Yet they still use the buttons because there's something about pushing that button when you get to the intersection that makes us feel like we're in control, right? And we have a desire to be in control. In fact, this uh, is so prevalent that the psychological community has actually come up with a name for this phenomenon. It's called the illusion of control. Now, here's how the illusion of control works. Most people would tell you they have a better chance of winning the lottery if they get to choose their own numbers, instead of the computer picking for them. Now, people may know in their heads that it's a completely random process, but people think, if I pick my own numbers, I've got a better chance of winning than if the computer picks them. 
It's been shown that people uh, gambling in Las Vegas, for instance, believe that they can control the outcome on a set of dice by how hard they throw. And so what they find is that people who are shooting craps will throw harder when they need higher numbers and will throw softer when they need lower numbers. Uh, For instance, people believe they have a better chance of winning a coin toss when they get to make the call. So I want to call heads. I always call heads and I always win, right? We know it's completely random, but people feel like they have a better chance of winning when they get to make the call. And overwhelmingly, this is the one that's most fascinating to me, people believe that they are less likely to have a car accident when I'm driving than when somebody else is driving. So I believe that I'm less likely to have a car accident. And that's why when your husband, when your wife, when your teenager is driving, you always find yourself reaching for that imaginary brake pedal, right, on the passenger side, because you believe you can exert some kind of control over that car. It's also why moms... When uh, you're driving and you have to stop really quickly, you extend your arm across to keep your kid from flying through the windshield. Like if the seatbelt fails, your arm is going to develop superhuman strength and you'll be able to hold your child back from flying through the windshield because we have this need, right, to be in control. We all feel a desire to be in control of the situation. But Jesus had something else to say about being in control. While, While our culture says you determine your destiny, You are in control. You get to make the call. Jesus challenged us to a different approach. And so we're in week three of this series called Beautiful, and we're looking at a set of eight statements that Jesus made at the beginning of what's probably his most famous uh, sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And these statements are commonly called the Beatitudes. We call them that because the the root of the word Beatitude is the word Beatus, which is a Latin word. It means blessed. These are eight statements where Jesus pronounces blessings on certain groups of people. Well, that word beatus is also the root word for our English word beautiful. That's where we get the name of this series. And Jesus is talking about what a beautiful life looks like. Now, we've already talked about how many of the people of the day uh, would have been shocked by these statements, that they were very countercultural, that they weren't what people expected. And we've, they kind of undermine the ruling authority of the people of the day. Uh, when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, not the religious superstars, but the poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed. Uh, Then he said, those who mourn are blessed, not the, you know, reminding us just how important it is to look honestly at our condition and our sinfulness. And we've kind of said over the last two weeks that these statements will be shocking to you. But the truth is, if you've grown up in church or you've been around the Bible much at all, you probably look at those and you go, yeah, I'm not really shocked. I mean, because I've read those before, I've heard them before, maybe you've memorized them before. And so when you hear, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, uh, you probably just think, yeah, I've heard that all before. But what we're hoping is that over these eight weeks that it will cause you to take a new look at these statements and say, you know, what Jesus said really was countercultural. It was upside down from the world that people knew at the time. And, and I hope it will cause you to take a step back and look at what it might have meant to the people who heard it for the first time 2,000 years ago. Because as we said, these weren't the rulers and authorities that Jesus was talking to. Many of the people who followed Jesus were not the rock stars. They were the ordinary people. They were the laborers and fishermen, and they were the the family men and women. They were, uh, you know, the normal, the farmers and, and their families. They were ordinary common people like you and me. They were working hard. They were trying to raise a family. They were trying to lead well and trying to learn about this kingdom that Jesus kept talking about, this kingdom of heaven. And the cool thing about it was that Jesus was paying attention to them. 
And so a lot of times the, the rabbis, the teachers of the day, wouldn't pay attention to the common people because they had some power that they were trying to accumulate. They had uh, you know, some purpose that they were trying to fulfill. And while Jesus had a purpose too, it, it uh, rested in the common man. And so here comes this rabbi, and what we see is for the first few months of his ministry, he's going from place to place to place, and he's healing people, and he's teaching people, and he's stopping to take time to talk to people. And actually, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, started because Jesus saw these people. Matthew 5.1 says, he saw the crowds and then went up on a mountainside and sat down. So Jesus is investing in, he's paying attention to the common man, and then he starts teaching. And he starts teaching about this kingdom, a kingdom that was upside down from the kingdom the people knew. This is where we see the brilliance of Jesus as he looks out across the crowd and he thinks, okay, who do I really have here? Like, who am I really trying to teach? Who am I trying to get through to? He sees people trying to survive, trying to do their best for their families and to live for God. And they're, they're tired of trying to carry the heavy weight that religion has put on their shoulders and they're, they're longing to be a part of this kingdom that he's talking about. And so he blesses the poor in spirit, and he blesses those who mourn, and then he gets to beatitude number three, which is where we pick off today, pick up today in Matthew 5, 5, and he says this. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I wonder what you think of when you think of the word meek. Uh, I usually think of weak, because, uh, well, it's unfortunate that the two words rhyme, and so it makes it a really easy connection. But if you're like me at all, you think of... Um, when I was growing up reading comic books, in the back of the comic books, there was always an ad for Charles Atlas, who was a bodybuilder. And you may remember that there was a, uh, the ad had a muscular guy kicking sand in the face of the 98-pound weakling, right? And when I think of meek, I often think of the 98-pound weakling. That's, that guy's meek, okay? But he's also weak. You know, he's getting kicked, sand in his, kicked in his face by the bully. You think about somebody who has no power, at least I do. But that's not what meek means, I think as we look at this passage and we look at our biblical examples of meekness, what we're going to see is this. I think this is so important, and I hope you'll write this down, that real meekness is power under control. It's power under control. In fact, if you have your own Bible, you might underline that word meek and put in the margin there, power under control. Or if you've got a Kindle or an iPad and you're reading on there, you might just highlight that and make that note. Real meekness is power under control. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said meek. Meekness is actually strength but it's strength under authority. It's strength in submission. When we think of meekness this way, we might think of the power and grace of a thoroughbred horse. I don't know how many of you watched the Belmont Stakes last weekend and saw uh, American Pharaoh become the first horse in 37 years to win the Triple Crown, the three most prestigious uh, horse races in the United States. But you can look at this picture and just see the muscle, the strength, in that animal, right? You look at that, and if you see him race, what you see is this great picture of strength and grace and beauty. And the truth is that American Pharaoh is probably not the strongest horse in the world. But under the control of a jockey, he becomes the strongest, the fastest on the racetrack on any given day. I mean, last weekend he proved that, that under the control of a jockey, under authority, under submission, American Pharaoh is very strong. The power of a racehorse becomes useful when it's been tamed and trained and harnessed and directed towards a goal. Well, in the same way, meekness is strength under control. Our strength, our strength is most useful when it's submitted to authority. And specifically in this case, I'm going to say submitted to the authority of God. 
Theologian Scott McKnight defines Jesus' use of the word meek this way. He says, The meek are those who suffer and who have been humbled, and yet they do not seek revenge but God's glory and the welfare of others. In other words, they lovingly trust God and hope in God's timing and justice. And as Jesus, it's likely that as Jesus looked out across the crowd he was preaching to, he saw people who were meek. He saw people that had strength, but they were able to control it. See, so many of the religious people of the day were strong, but their strength was out of control. They used you know, their power and authority to uh, mock people, to ridicule people, to arrest people, to persecute people, and even to have people killed who disagreed with them. They had strength, but it was out of control. When Jesus looks for people for his kingdom, though, he's looking for people who have their power under control. He's looking for people who are capable of living under his authority and who are willing to submit and and be in complete dependence on him. So there are a couple people in the Bible, only two that I could find, who are described as meek. You may know of more, but there were two that I could find, and the first guy is a guy named Moses. Now, Moses is arguably one of the greatest leaders in human history, Even if you don't know your Bible at all, you know about Moses. You either know of him as Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments or as the Prince of Egypt. It depends on how old you are, okay? But one of those two pictures you probably have of Moses. Moses uh, was a great leader. He he took on Pharaoh, the ruler of the Egyptian empire. In fact, ten times God sent him to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Moses did that ten times. It takes real strength to go before the same guy ten times and say, this time, I mean it right? Like this is really going to happen. But he had to do that. He led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the parted Red Sea. Moses received and then delivered to the people the Ten Commandments. And he led the people through Israel for many years and eventually right to the edge of the promised land where the nation took over after Moses died. Now, a lot of us have heard about Moses. We know that he's a powerful leader. Uh, We know that he is a great man, but there's a particular verse in the Old Testament in Numbers uh, that tells us a lot about Moses' character. Numbers 12.3 says this, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. That's a powerful statement. I don't know how many people were on the face of the earth at that time, but certainly uh, they must have thought a lot of Moses to think he was that humble. Now, here's how the New American Standard Version says that, that same text says, now Moses was very meek above all the men that were upon the face of the earth. And two things I notice about this verse. First of all, it says that he was very meek above. We don't think of meekness being above, do we? But he was meek above the people on the face of the earth. The second thing, this great leader Moses was the meekest person on earth, but was he weak? <laughs> Not on your life. Moses had great power and great influence, but it was under control. It was submitted to the authority of God. Now, this wasn't always the case. If you read Moses' story, what you find out is that he grew up in a palace in Egypt. He was in the house of the Pharaoh. He was a prince in that land. Uh, There was a time when Moses had power out of control. In fact, if you read his story, you could almost see disaster coming. He had the best education. He had major wealth. He had all the privilege uh, of anybody who was born into a royal family. He had incredible prestige. Everywhere he went, as he passed by, people would bow down to him. They were in awe of his power. He had it all. But Moses lacked meekness, and it cost him dearly. So what happened was one time in a fit of rage, he killed a man. 
And even with all the power, it didn't give him the power to commit murder. And so he ended up having to go into exile. He went into a place called Midian, which was out in the wilderness. He became a fugitive. He was on the run from the authorities of Egypt. So here was this man who was a prince in Egypt on the run from the authorities. He had to go out into the desert and start his life all over again. He became a shepherd, just a humble shepherd from being a prince to being a shepherd. I mean, talk about crash landing. Talk about going from uh, the pinnacle of living to being on the very bottom. I think that's what you see in the story of Moses. I wonder if some of you in here have that experience, if you know what that's like. I wonder if there's any dads in here that know what it's like to go from the place where you feel like you're on top of the world to where you've crash landed. You messed up and she left. You lost your job. You made one poor decision, and all of a sudden you're living in the consequences of that decision. I mean, power is a tricky thing. Influence is a difficult thing. The truth is a lot of us try to use whatever power we have to satisfy our wants, our needs, our desires, and to get what we want. And sometimes we mistreat other people to do that. We blow it in a relationship. So often it has to do with our power out of control. We want something we can't have. We end up with something we didn't want. We get angry. We argue. We fight back. We demand control. We want to be in charge. We use our personal power to try to fill our desires. And I think that's true for many of us. I saw an article this week about a recent study. A researcher wanted to find out if power and authority would actually corrupt normal people. And so what he did was he took subjects and put them in groups of two and put them in a room and had them play Monopoly with one another. And he wanted to see which one would kill the other one first. No, not really. That didn't really happen. What he did, he had them play Monopoly, and he intentionally skewed the game so that it was in one person's favor over the other. So he gave one person twice as much money and let them use both dice, and then the other person got half as much money and could only use one die. And what he found was that in a matter of minutes, the player who had the game rigged in their favor started to change the way they acted. They started to make less eye contact with the other person. They started to take up more of the table. They started to grow kind of their empire physically in the table. They uh, started to move the other player's piece for them. What they found is this very uh, contrived power made people feel like they had real power and influence and authority. Even though both people knew the game was rigged, both people knew it was just a game, it only took a few minutes of artificial power to convince someone that they had real power and status. Well, that's what happened to Moses. He he took matters into his own hands. He ended up killing a guy. I'm pretty sure that most of us haven't done anything like that. But maybe you can find an example from your past where your power or your desire to be in control cost you a lot. It cost Moses. It cost him everything. He winds up in the wilderness as a shepherd, and it was 40 years, 40 years from the time that Moses left Egypt as a prince until God spoke to him in the burning bush. 40 years. Stop for a moment. Think about that. He made one mistake. It was a big mistake, but it was one mistake. had radical, life-changing consequences. I don't want to be a discouragement to you today, but some of you have been living with the effects of one big mistake in your life. You've been suffering the consequences for some time now. Maybe it's weeks, maybe it's months, maybe years. And what kind of doubts and regrets do you think Moses had? 
for 40 years living with the experiences of his mistakes. You know, if you feel like you're in a wilderness experience right now, whether it's because of your choices or something that happened to you, I know it's a struggle. I know it's hard. I know you want to give up. But I want you to know that the wilderness is often very intentional. It's a place where God can use for our benefit and for his glory. It's a place where God can reach down to people and and reach them in a way that he can't reach you when you have power and authority and when your power is out of control. If you let him in the wilderness experience, if you submit your strength to him, he can use you in an incredible way. He can use this time to get through to you and to increase your dependence on him. He can use this time to humble you and you can come out a better person on the other end. It's interesting when you think about it that God didn't raise Moses up as the leader of Israel when he was a prince in Egypt. Moses already had all the power and authority that he could ever want in Egypt, but God didn't reach him there. God waited until he was humbled and he had been in the wilderness for a long time. It wasn't until Moses had been stripped of all his worldly power all his titles, and he was a lowly shepherd in the desert that God decided to really take hold of his life. I really believe Moses' experience of being a shepherd of animals in the wilderness prepared him to be a shepherd of the people of Israel uh, in his life. God used that wilderness season to grow and cultivate meekness in the life of Moses. And as a result, he became the meekest man who ever lived. The man who once acted impulsively, Abusing the power he possessed became the man who submitted to the authority of God. In fact, one time we see Exodus 33, Moses said this to God. He said, if you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And then the Lord replied to him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. In other words, do you see that meekness? Do you see his power under control there. He's asking for God to work through him. He's telling God, I don't want to go without you. I don't want to use my power. I want your power to work through me. He's, he's wanting God's agenda to replace his own agenda. He's dependent on God for strength and for wisdom and for direction. And did God's power flow through him after that? Absolutely. If you read that story, there's no doubt that, God, that Moses learned a life independent from God was not a life that he wanted to live. He wanted to be completely and utterly dependent on the Lord. All right, sure, Steve, that worked really well for Moses. But this is the real world. I know you're living in pastor world up there, but in the real world, that's not how it works. The meek don't always get ahead. Don't don't you see that the people who get ahead in life are the people who assert their authority? They're the people that show their power and strength. They're the people who, who really lay down the law to people. Those are the people that get ahead. Maybe you don't see that in your little pastor office and, and up there on the stage, but in the real world, that's how it works, right? Let me ask you this, though. Who has an NBA trophy today? Is it the player who made headlines at a press conference by telling everybody he was the best player in the world? Or is it the team that made headlines on the court by submitting their power and authority to one another and to their coach? See, even in the real world, the people that want to exert their power and authority don't always get ahead. It's important that we realize, too, that Jesus' teaching at this time 2,000 years ago was just as countercultural as it is today. So we hear something like, blessed are the meek, and we think, well, that's not how it works in our society. i got to tell you, people that were sitting in that audience were thinking the exact same thing because they looked around and they saw the authorities and the rulers of that day, and they said, those are the guys that are getting ahead. And Jesus said, no, that's not how it works in my kingdom. This is how it's going to work in my kingdom. 
if you submit your authority to my authority, that's who's going to get ahead. It's the meek. It's the most dependent. It's the meek who inherit the earth. Now, if you think this doesn't work in the real world, you may be surprised to find out that the leading business research uh, shows this to be true as well. Several years ago, I read a book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. Anybody read Good to Great? You guys read that book? Fantastic book. It, it uh, interviews or reviews many companies that went from long-term mediocre financial performance to all of a sudden having long-term exceptional financial performance. They went from, in other words, from being good to being great, good to great. And one of the things that they found that uh, Collins and his team of researchers found out that all of these companies that did really well had in common uh, was what they called level five leaders. Now, level five leaders had two distinguishing characteristics. One, they had fierce resolve to fix what needs to be fixed, to get done what needs to be done. That's power, right? They had the ability to find something that was wrong and fix it. So they had power. And then they were not me-centered. They were had extreme personal humility. So their power was under control. And in this book, Collins contrasted two business leaders. One few people have heard of, a guy by the name of Ken Iverson, and another many of us have heard of, uh, Lee Iacocca. Now, Ken Iverson was the CEO of Nucor. He took this company from the verge of bankruptcy uh, to one of the most successful steel companies in the world. He was the one who oversaw Nucor's transformation. And here's how one of Nucor's board members described Iverson. He said, Ken is a very modest and humble man. I've never known a person as successful in doing what he's done that's as modest. That's true in his private life as well, the simplicity of him. I mean, little things. He has a simple house that he's lived in for ages. He only has a carport, and he complained to me one day about how he had to use his credit card to scrape the frost off his windows, and he broke the credit card. I told him, you know, Ken, there's a solution for that. You can enclose your carport. And he said, ah, heck, it isn't that big of a deal. He's that humble and simple. As Iverson led his company, he did away with executive perks like reserve parking and special health benefits for executives. He was known to have personally answered his telephone whenever he was in the office. This was a guy who ran one of the greatest corporations in America. Now, so Collins contrasted him with Lee Iacocca, who saved Chrysler from the brink of bankruptcy, performing one of the probably most celebrated turnarounds in the history of corporate America. But then after that happened, Iacocca diverted his attention away from making Chrysler great and to making himself one of the most celebrated CEOs in American history. And so if you remember this era, Iacocca appeared on many talk shows. He was in over 80 Chrysler commercials. Uh, He even considered running for president. His book, titled Iacocca, sold 7 million copies. It elevated him to celebrity status. And while his personal stock soared, what happened was in the last part of Iacocca's tenure, Chrysler stock plummeted and fell about 30%, over 30% in the last part of his reign. Now, Collins' bottom line research said that the best leaders, both relationally and financially, are those who are meek. They've got power under control. It's true in the Bible world. It's true in the sports world. It's true in the business world. It's true in your world. It's true in my world. Jesus said the same thing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So how do we live meek lives? I mean, what does it mean for those of us who decide we want to be more meek? We want to depend more on Jesus. We want to live the beautiful life on this earth. 
Well, when Jesus spoke these words, he was actually making a reference to a part of the Old Testament, the the book of Psalm. Uh, We see it captured in Psalm 37. It's a psalm that talks about meekness and what it means to live a dependent life. It'll be on the side screens here if you want to follow along. But Psalm 37, 1 through 11, it says this, Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. In verse 3, God says, here's what I have for you. Okay, here's what a meek life looks like. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. And so what does this mean? What can we see from this piece of scripture about becoming meek? Well, four things, I think, really quick that we can find from this piece of scripture that that we can do to help us become more meek. Number one is this, trust in the Lord. That's what it says in verse uh, three, trust in the Lord. When you're working hard and nobody sees it, we trust in him. When you're trying to lead your kids and they're not getting it because it happens, right? We trust in the Lord. When you're in the wilderness and you don't know why, You trust in the Lord. You trust in him. He's your heavenly father. He's crazy about you. He has a plan for your life, and it's better than any plan that you have for your life. Trust him. Number two is this from verse four. Take delight in the Lord. We take delight in him. I mean, how much would your life change if you just did this one thing? I mean, instead of looking at your daily devotion time as a chore, what if you were to change your attitude so that it became precious to you? so that you looked forward to it, that you desired it, you longed for it. I mean, just me and God and my Bible and a cup of coffee and 30 minutes or whatever you like to do when you read. I mean, that's precious time going before the Lord and delighting in him. You know, I didn't clear this with her, but my friend Robin that works here in the office with me, she shared this quote with me a couple weeks ago that God has been teaching her in her personal time. And uh, she said that the Lord spoke to her and said, hey, if you don't want to spend an hour a day with me now, why would you want to spend for eternity with me in heaven? You know, if we can't spend an hour a day with the Lord or half an hour a day with the Lord, if we don't delight in that, what are we working toward? We delight in the Lord. Number three is this, commit your ways to the Lord. Decide in your heart that you're going to walk like Jesus walked. You're going to lead like Jesus led. So many times in the New Testament, Jesus says, walk as I walked, do as I did, follow the example I set for you. And so many of us have become really good hearers of the word. We love to study, we love to read, we love to come to church and we hear what God has to say and we say, that's great, that's awesome. And then I'll go live how I wanna live. But if we really wanna become meek, we need to be really good doers of the word. We got to do what we hear and do what we read. The best way to become meek is to go practice what you read and what you hear. And number four, finally, be still, to be still before the Lord. Don't just pray to talk. You got to pray to listen. You may not hear anything at first, but hang in there. The Lord promises that he will speak to his people. In John 10, Jesus says, uh, I know my sheep and they know, they, they know the, the voice of the shepherd. Well, how do we know the voice of the shepherd? Because he speaks to us. And so here's what's going to happen. If you are used to praying for, to talk, 
and you've never prayed to listen, what's going to happen is you're going to pray, you're going to talk, you're going to shut up, and then you're going to hear crickets. You won't hear anything for a long time. And here's why, because you have maybe shut out the voice of the Lord in your life. But if you do it enough, and if you're patient, and if you wait on him, if you give him space, he will talk to you. He will invest in you. He will lead you in the way that you should go. But you've got to be still before the Lord. You've got to abide in him. Church, what if we committed to just do these four things? To become more meek by trusting in him and taking delight in him and committing our ways to him and being still before the Lord. How could it change the way we relate to God? How could it you know, change the way we conduct our everyday lives and the way we lead in the workplace, how we lead in our schools, how we, how we lead our families? I mean, dads, what if you committed this week to become more meek, to, to take your strength and submit it to the strength of God? Now, how can your family benefit from that? How, how could you personally benefit from that? I mean, Moses is one example of biblical meekness. The only other one I can find And the best one is Jesus himself. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus calling out to people. And in Matthew 11, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Remember that? Well, that that word gentle is actually the same word that's translated here as meek. That Jesus is meek. That word, gentle, is meek. Jesus was the personification of meekness of strength under control. And what we see in Jesus' life is he came to serve. He came to serve with his whole life. And maybe one of the greatest ways that we can become meek is to become a servant. I mean, dads, husbands, one of the best ways that you can lead your family this week, what if you tried to outserve your family? You know, what if you tried to outserve your wife this week? What if you tried to outserve your kids this week? I mean, if, if there's a job that nobody wants, I'll take that one. I'll do that. And there's a burnt piece of bacon, you know, on the breakfast plate, I'll, I'll eat that one. And if there's someone in my family that has to stay up late or get up early to do some task, I'll do that. Somebody has to take the dog out in the rain. I'll do that. I'll get wet for my family. You know, if there's a neighbor that nobody likes, nobody wants to talk to, I'll talk to him. I'll pray for him. I'll, I'll write his name on the love where you are poster. I'll have my whole church praying for him. I'll do that. I'll serve my family. That's what Jesus did. He served. But, but no one could argue that Jesus was weak. And this man at the end of his life was mocked, beaten, lashed until his back and his legs were torn open and bloody. He was then dragged through the streets of town, made to carry his own cross, even though it wasn't his cross that he carried. It was, it was my cross and it was your cross. And he was then cursed and spat upon and nailed to a cross with two giant nails, one through each wrist and then one through his feet. And he was hung up there to suffocate. One of the most painful and agonizing deaths I could ever imagine. He was definitely not weak. And what we may forget is that in his humanity, Jesus didn't want to do this. What we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before this happened, he was praying and he cried out to his father. He said, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. In other words, he said, this is going to be painful. This is going to hurt. I don't want to do this. But then he said, strength under control, right? He said, but not my will. But your will be done. Is meekness weakness? Not a chance. Meekness is power under God's control. And it's a beautiful thing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> God, I'm so thankful for these 
two examples uh, of meekness in Scripture that we can look to. And as people, and Lord, especially this morning, as, as men, as dads, we can look and we can model our lives. I, I'm thankful so much for Jesus and for the sacrifice he made on the cross and for the way that he takes away the sin of the world and, and for the way that he overcame death. God, I'm so thankful for that. But more and more as I read his story, I'm thankful for the example he sets for us for how to live. I'm thankful for the way he served. I'm thankful for the way he led his people. I'm thankful for the meekness that he showed. Lord, never once mistaking it for weakness, but always showing strength, strength and humility and strength under control and strength submitted to the authority of the Father. God, I want to live my life like that. Help me to be more meek. Help us as a church to exhibit our strength, but let everybody know that it's under your authority. It's under your control. God, help us to be meek. We, we want to be meek. We stick to your promise today that we will inherit the earth. God, we can just come before you now in a time of worship through song. And I just pray that as we submit to you, as we turn this over to you, Lord, as we, as we just declare that everything that we have belongs to you, everything is yours, God, I just pray that that would honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.